Hi. Welcome to the Reeves Tale, a medieval miscellany with Andrew Reeves, a place where I discuss things about the Middle Ages that I find interesting. Imagine, if you will, the deserts of Egypt. In the background lie the pyramids, whose surfaces were much smoother than they are today. At the banks of the Nile lies the city of Cairo, and twenty miles away sits an encampment of crusaders, mailed knights and infantry alike. Leading them is Amalric, king of the crusader kingdom of Jerusalem. The year is 1169, and these warriors of the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem are seeking to topple the Fatimid Caliphate and seize control of the prize of Egypt. This episode will tell the story of how a king and an emperor sought and ultimately failed to conquer Egypt, and how their failure led to the rise of the great jihadi Saladin, who would return Jerusalem to Muslim rule. So to set up our story, we need some background. If you're more or less familiar with the First Crusade and the Crusader states, feel free to skip ahead a bit. But if not, well, here's a brief rundown. The Greek-speaking Eastern Roman Empire had remained a mighty Christian empire long after the Western Empire had fallen, carved up into various kingdoms by Germanic invaders and the empire's own generals. This empire had been substantially weakened when the followers of the new religion Islam appeared and conquered most of the Middle East and North Africa. Weakened, but still enduring. Indeed, by the 1000s, the Eastern Roman Empire which from here on out I'll call the Byzantine Empire for convenience, once again dominated the eastern Mediterranean. All that changed in 1071. The empire's field army, over a 100,000 strong, went to battle with the Turkish sultan Al Arslan. You see, the Turks, a nomadic people from the plains of Central Asia called the Steppes, had converted to Islam in the previous decades, and then entered the Middle East to rule over it as the rightful defenders of the Muslim religion. And so they clashed with one of the other great powers of the region, the Byzantine Empire. Given that we now refer to the region of this battle as Turkey, you can probably figure out how that battle went. Yeah, field army wiped out, emperor taken captive, Turks at the gates of Constantinople, the capital. But... The Byzantine emperor, Alexios Komnenos, had sent out a request for help to the people of Western Europe, who, after all, were Christian. Surely, requested this emperor, some Christian knights could travel east to provide some military service to a Christian empire that was now in danger of being conquered. In one of those little oddities of history, the Pope at the time got the bright idea to not just call for some knights to help out the Byzantine Empire, but to call on all of Europe's knightly class, and more besides, to conquer Jerusalem, bringing it from Muslim rule to Christian rule. Tens of thousands of men responded enthusiastically to this call, and to make a long and dramatic story short, over three years and change they traveled east, dealing enough defeats to the Turks that the Byzantine Empire got shored up. They traveled further south, conquering most of the Levant, culminating in the conquest of Jerusalem in 1099. These men then established a set of crusader states, ruled by men and women who were Christian and ethnically Western European. Greatest of these states was the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem. 
For several decades, these crusader states stood flanked by their Middle Eastern neighbors. To the northwest of these states lay the Byzantine Empire, as well as the Turkish-ruled parts of what is today called, well, Turkey. To the northeast was Aleppo, subject to Mosul, itself theoretically subject to the caliph in Baghdad, but in practice its own realm. These guys were Sunni. To the southeast were the deserts of Arabia, and to the southwest was Egypt, ruled by the Shiite Fatimid caliphs. Guys, this was a massive, massive oversimplification, but I want to get to the actual story. So the Crusader states had warred with their neighbors, made alliances with their neighbors, and been subject to an on-again, off-again overlordship by the Byzantine emperor. And now we arrive in the 1150s. Let's talk about the players here. First, there's the Byzantine emperor, Manuel Komnenos. He was an ally of the Crusader states, and also himself a fan of the culture of Western Europe. Indeed, his own wife was a princess of the German-speaking Holy Roman Empire, and after her death, his second wife would be Maria of Antioch, a member of the nobility of the Crusader states. He was so fond of the culture of the Latins, as the Greek-speaking Byzantines called Western Europeans, that he even had jousts in the Hippodrome, Constantinople's chariot track. Manuel's goal was to expand the power of the empire in all directions. He was a man who knew that he was Roman emperor. He had some initial successes in the West, crushing a Serbian rebellion in 1149, and by 1167 he'd subjugated Bosnia and part of what's now Croatia. To the east, his Turkish neighbors in Iconium had agreed to a favorable peace with him. He further subjugated the princedom of Cilician Armenia to the empire. And he forced the crusader prince of Antioch, Reynald of Châtillon, into acknowledging him as overlord. As he expanded his power in the eastern Mediterranean, another important target was Egypt. To take on Egypt, he'd need help from the strongest of the crusader states, the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem, whose boundaries were more or less similar to the modern nation of Israel, although they included what is now the West Bank and went a little bit east of the Jordan River. This brings us to our second major player, King Amalric of Jerusalem. So let's talk about Amalric. He had succeeded to the throne in 1163, when his brother, Baldwin III, had died. Amalric's policies as king of Jerusalem had been to strengthen the king's authority. One element of that was bringing what we call rear vassals under his control. A rear vassal means the vassal of your vassal. He required that every rear vassal swear personal allegiance to him, and also worked to increase taxes, both of which put the crown on a stronger footing. As for the king's personal character, well... We know a lot about it because William of Tyre, the famed chronicle of the Crusader states, knew him and gave us a character sketch. He was quite intelligent and could hold forth in debate with some of the best educated men of the Christian West. He was fond of hunting and other active pursuits. He was both tactically and strategically smart, kept a clear head in battle, and was a forceful, adroit leader. In his personal life, Well, how to put this delicately, it probably wasn't a good idea to leave him alone with your wife. 
and he was very, very fat. I shall quote William of Tyre here. Pinguis erat supramodum, ita ut more femineo mamilas haberet cingulotenus prominentes. That's Latin for, he was excessively fat, having breasts like a woman that hung down to his belt. So, um, yes, thanks, William, for that description. Both Amalric and Manuel had their sights set on Egypt. Why? Well, the Fatimid Caliphate had been weakening for a while. The Kingdom of Jerusalem had managed to take the great stronghold of Ascalon from the Caliphate in 1153, and in the later 1150s, the Caliphate had collapsed into a revolving door of, of plot and counterplot, as one faction after another looked to assert control over the land of the Nile. There was still a caliph in Cairo who claimed theoretical authority as a successor to Muhammad, but in practice, control rested in the hands of the viziers. The caliphate was so weak that since the 1150s, it had been forced to pay tribute to the kingdom of Jerusalem. In 1163, three viziers succeeded one another in a matter of months. One of the ousted viziers, Shawar, had gone to Aleppo for assistance. And now we come to the Muslim players on the stage. Nur ad-Din, the emir of Aleppo, was a jihadi, that is, a warrior against the enemies of Islam. His goal was to unite the scattered Muslim emirates and to eventually create a strong enough Muslim power base to retake Jerusalem. We must remember, after all, that Jerusalem was a holy city to Christians and Jews, but was also a holy city to Muslims. It is the site of the Dome of the Rock, the great golden-domed mosque built on the site where Abraham was said to have offered up his son for sacrifice. And when Muhammad had his out-of-body experience, that night journey, or mirage, he was said to have ascended to heaven from that very site. Oh, and it was also the site of what had been Solomon's temple thousands of years before. So yeah, this place was also pretty important to Muslims. Nur ad-Din's predecessor had destroyed one of the Crusader states, and Nur ad-Din himself had inflicted several defeats on the Crusader principality of Antioch. He had received subordination from Mosul, and had then brought Damascus under his control after an extreme cock-up on the part of Crusaders trying to take the city in the 1140s. He was bringing all Muslims under his rule, and so he saw the weakened Egypt as a valuable prize. Nur ad-Din's chief general in Egypt was the Kurdish mercenary Asad ad-Din Shirku. Shirku had a taste for fatty meats, and so, like King Emelric, was exceedingly fat. Shirku's nephew was Yusuf ibn Ayyub, a.k.a. Salah ad-Din, a.k.a. Saladin. And if you've heard of any of these guys so far, it's probably him, the most famous enemy of the Crusaders but here we encounter him early in his career. So these were the players. Now we come to the battle for Egypt. As far back as 1159, King Baldwin, Amalric's predecessor, and Manuel had met to discuss an expedition against Egypt. So the writing was pretty clearly on the wall. 
1163, Dirgum, who had taken over as vizier, suspended tribute to Jerusalem. Shawar, meanwhile, had gone to Aleppo to get help to regain his position as vizier. And so, the battle for Egypt was on. At the outset, this contest was pretty evenly matched. Jerusalem had a disadvantage in numbers, but Shirku was at the end of a fairly long logistical tether, and also had to either bring his forces through lands crawling with crusader castles, or across the hostile deserts of the Negev. Amalric struck first, invading Egypt in 1163, but he was turned back when Egyptian forces broke the dikes at the city of Bilbais, causing flooding that made further advances by the Crusader army impossible. Then, Shirku set out for Egypt in 1164 from Aleppo. At the same time, nur invaded Crusader-ruled Syria from the northeast so that Amalric had to watch his northern flank. In May of 1164, Shirku arrived in Cairo and restored Shawar to power. Aleppo and nur had won the first round. But, Shawar wanted control of Egypt, but he did not want to submit to Aleppo. Shawar eventually refused tribute, and so Shirku seized control of Bilbais in the eastern part of Egypt. So at this point, Shawar switched sides and appealed to Amalric for help. Meanwhile, by happy coincidence, a crusading army had shown up from Europe and so Jerusalem had lots of available manpower. Amalric invaded Egypt and laid siege to Shirku's army in Bilbais. After a three-month siege, Bilbais looked to be on the verge of collapse, but hearing of nur invasion of Syria, and nur coming within a few miles of the walls of Antioch itself, Amalric felt that he couldn't afford to stay tied up in Egypt, and so Shirku and Amalric both agreed to withdraw from Egypt. The result was a stalemate, but Egypt retained its independence under a weakened Shawar. Remember, though, that Nur ad-Din's overarching goal was to unite the Muslim Middle East, and so he would continue to have his sights set on Egypt, which we must remember was exceedingly wealthy, both from its agricultural production and trade with the Indian Ocean and with Sub-Saharan Africa. So in 1166, nur hatched another plan to invade Egypt. But Shawar caught wind of it and called on Amalric for help. Notice here that we have a dynamic of a Shiite Muslim caliph allying with a Catholic Christian crusader against a Sunni Muslim jihadi. These shifting dynamics characterized much of the Crusades. Both Jerusalem and Aleppo made a dash for Egypt, with both armies arriving in Egypt in January of 1167. Amalric failed to intercept Shirku. Meanwhile, Shawar invited representatives of Amalric to Cairo, where we are told the knights gawked at the magnificence of the caliph's palace, with its fish pools, cages of exotic birds and animals, and lavish decorations. Shawar agreed to give 400,000 gold pieces to Amalric for his aid against Shirku. Shirku moved south, and Amalric followed him. They clashed at Al-Babain, in Upper Egypt, and both Amalric and Shirku took heavy casualties. 
Shirku marched north and took control of Alexandria. And yes, this is the famous port city known for its library in ancient times. Amalric marched north and laid siege to the city. As conditions deteriorated, Shirku sent a small contingent to slip out of the walls and march south into Upper Egypt. Amalric sent a force after Shirku at first, but in the end broke off the pursuit and pressed the assault on Alexandria. The army of Jerusalem built massive siege engines, and as the Alexandrian defenses tottered, Shirku sued for peace. Amalric agreed, and Shirku withdrew to Damascus in ignominy. Let us note, by the way, that even as early as the 1160s, Saladin was noted for his courtesy during the negotiations. Shirku had failed to conquer Egypt, and Amalric left a small garrison in Cairo to assist his ally Shawar. The Latins were ascendant. We now return to Emperor Manuel Comnenos, whom you will remember had big plans. His second wife was the sister of the Prince of Antioch, and I've already noted that he asserted control over Cilicia and Antioch. In 1167, Manuel sent his grandniece Maria to Acre, and on 29 August, she and Amalric were married. Amalric and imperial representatives discussed the conquest and division of Egypt, and he dispatched William of Tyre to the emperor's military headquarters to discuss further actions. But, before plans with the Greeks could be finalized, Amalric launched an invasion in 1168. Why'd he invade before everything was fully planned? Part of it may have been the tensions were building with Shawar, who was having second thoughts about that 400,000 gold pieces he'd promised Amalric when Shirku was at his front door. Another reason for these tensions was that the crusader garrison in Cairo was apparently behaving with incredible arrogance and running around like they owned the place. Let's note that this sort of behavior by medieval knights is not uncommon. Maybe Amalric was trying to invade Egypt before Shirku could give it another try. We do know that the Knights Templar, the warrior monks who provided a major part of Crusader state manpower, were opposed to the invasion of Egypt. While the leadership of that other order of warrior monks, the Hospitallers, alongside certain factions of the Kingdom of Jerusalem's nobility, thought it was a great idea. Whatever Amalric's reasoning... In spite of the pleas of Shawar's emissary, in October of 1168, Amalric invaded Egypt. On 4 November, his forces took Bilbais. And, as usual, they subjected the population to a general massacre. As an added bonus, quite a few of the people massacred were Egyptian Christians. Remember, Egypt was still around 50% Christian by this point. On 13 November, Amalric laid siege to Cairo. After a lengthy series of negotiations, Shawar paid Amalric 100,000 dinars. That was now, and then he also gave hostages to ensure that he was good for another 100,000. Meanwhile, Amalric moved off northeast of Cairo. A Christian fleet showed up at Tinis, near the mouth of the Nile. Egyptian naval forces blockaded further advance up the river, and then Shirku showed up in Egypt. Amalric tried to keep Shirku from crossing the Nile, and thus being able to get reinforcements to Cairo. However, Shirku outmaneuvered Amalric, 
and entered Cairo unopposed. On 2 January 1169, the army of Jerusalem returned home to the north. Shirku was now in Cairo. On 18 January, Shawar's adroit diplomacy finally failed him, and he was ordered executed by Shirku, who is now in control of Egypt. But a short time later, his morbid obesity and heart condition caught up with him, and he died on March 22nd. Control of Egypt passed to Shirku's nephew Saladin. Saladin's position was somewhat tenuous. He was a Sunni Kurd ruling over a Shiite caliphate in Egypt. The garrison of black mercenaries, called the Sudan in Arabic, was still loyal to the Fatimid Caliphate, and also outnumbered Saladin. He managed to defeat the Sudan's uprising, and soon had the imams in Cairo begin to pray for the caliph in Baghdad in their Friday prayers. This, my friends, marked the end of the Fatimid Caliphate. But off to the north, Manuel was finally ready with Byzantine help. In September of 1169, a massive Byzantine fleet arrived in the city of Acre, a port city on the coast of what's now northern Israel. Byzantine troops disembarked and joined Amalric's forces. In October, the ground forces set out, marching overland to Egypt, while the Greek fleet attacked by sea. They reached Damietta, a city at the mouth of the eastern branch of the Nile, and actually caught Saladin flat-footed. But they delayed for three days and lost the initiative. That three days' delay allowed Saladin to send troops to reinforce Damietta, and so instead of seizing the city, the Christian forces settled in for a long siege. The Greco-Frankish force built a massive, seven-story siege engine that they used to attempt to storm the walls of Damietta. But the Muslims fought with bravery and skill. The Muslim forces took advantage of a northerly wind, and sent fire ships into the Byzantine fleet. A fire ship is just what it sounds like. You would take a ship, load it up with extremely flammable material, and then a skeleton crew would sail as close as possible to the enemy fleet, set fire to it, and then roll like hell and hope to escape. These fire ships crashed into the fleet and caused the loss of six Greek ships. The siege dragged on. Torrential rains soaked everything. And finally, after arguing among themselves whether to launch a final attack, the Greeks and Franks withdrew, burning their siege engines. A well-planned and skillfully executed gamble had failed to pay off. In the end, it was the crusader failure in Egypt that ultimately spelled the end of the kingdom of Jerusalem. The crusader states were now surrounded by a united Muslim empire that had access to the great breadbasket of the Middle East. Christian and Muslim had been evenly matched, but in the end Saladin had triumphed, and this would foreshadow his triumphant entry into Jerusalem itself in 1187. I hope you have enjoyed this foray into a lesser-known episode of Crusading History. I would like to give a shout-out and special thanks to my friend Dr. Adam Bishop, a crusade specialist who fact-checked this episode for me. If you'd like to support this work of mine that I'm doing in addition to my normal duties as a professor, please go over to the Patreon link and subscribe. I'm Andrew Reeves, and this is The Reeves Tale. Thanks for listening.